Stone, uh, it's good to be back here together worshiping with all of you this Lord's Day. Um, just, uh, it's a little bit odd. I was gone last week speaking at uh, Faith Bible Church's family retreat, but my heart was with all of you. And I remember distinctly Sunday morning at 9.45 a.m. as I was getting ready to preach at uh, Faith Bible Church's retreat, I was praying for Pastor Dan, knowing that he'd be coming up and preaching as well. Uh, what a wonderful season of ministry we've had in, the, in our church. God's been greatly uh, blessing us. Our retreat was um, one of the best retreats we've ever had. It keeps getting better every year. And uh, in the few weeks since, we've had like three kids added to our church family. Uh, the, the Kims had um, Nora uh, during our retreat. And the Chus had Brandon. Okay, Brandon, uh, last week, and uh, one more, one more, right? Who? Louder, louder. Uh, Enoch, that's right. I'm not his friend on Facebook, so I didn't get, <laughs> I'm not his friend, so I had to like steal somebody else's account to see their picture. That's why I don't, I didn't know that Enoch and Caitlin had, had a baby, um, baby boy as well. So, great. Um, well, we are back in our study in 2 Timothy, and with God's help, we will finish this book within six months, and that is our goal. And to begin our time, I'm going to share with you something, but before I start that sharing, I want to let you know I love my family. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys don't know me, you guys will think, wow, he doesn't love his family, but if you know me, you know I love my family. I love my children. I love them, but they are a handful. They, I have four children, seven, four, three, and two. And so the four-year-old and three-year-old and two-year-old are, are a handful. Seven-year-old, very helpful, but the other three are a handful. Um, so for me, I wake up in the morning, I get a cup of coffee, wash up, and I have an easy morning. I go study. I go to the Bible. I go pray. I return emails. You know, Kobe Bryant highlights. That's my morning. And then lunch, so we mix lunch, and I have a little, you know, sandwich with the kids, you know, lead family prayer, and uh, go back to my office go and, and study. And then the toughest part of my day starts at 5.30 p.m. 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. are the toughest part of the day. Because after we dinner at 5, it's over around 5.30, that's when daddy time begins. <laughs> you know, mom is with the children all day homeschooling them, doing all these errands all over Orange County with them. So 5.30, Surin says, my job is done. <laughs> it is finished. So it's <laughs> daddy's turn. So all four kids, like, just bombard me. And, and I'm not ready for this because I didn't ease my way into the four. All four tackle me. And so I've got to, like, play with them, read books. I mean, love, I love them, but, you know, i got to play guitar and... <laughs> watch like Yo Gabba Gabba with them and uh, all these things. And those two hours, it's like almost near death. It gets, <laughs> it gets progressively difficult with every, every minute. And then the clock turns 7.15. And 7.15, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what, and then once they're brushing their teeth, man, like, like emancipation proclamation. Like free at last, 7.30, they go down to sleep. Especially with the daylight savings, the sun goes down in the fall, and uh, they go to sleep, and my, you know, my, my, my rest time has begun. 
Uh, but again, toughest part of the day is 5.30 to 7.15, 7.30. Well, in 2 Timothy, the toughest passage of this book, of this epistle, here's a transition right here, is, uh, is verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses uh, 4 through 7, is the most difficult um, and maybe, for me, dreaded passage for me to interpret uh, all along. When we began, when we committed ourselves to study 2 Timothy, I knew this passage was ahead of me, and I dreaded it because it is such a difficult passage to interpret, understand, and apply. You know, I've heard... um, several messages on it, but several commentaries. And I could never understand exactly what Paul was saying here. Um, and uh, the common three-point sermon based upon this text is, um, be a soldier, don't be a coward, be brave and suffer, suffer hardship. Point two, uh, you know, don't take steroids, don't cheat, you know, compete according to the rules like a good athlete. And then point three is like a farmer, Farmer works hard, wakes up early, works late. Farmer is diligent, so be a hard-working farmer. So don't be a lazy Christian. Okay, let's pray and let's go have snacks. That's a typical approach to this passage. But if you interpret this passage that way, and if your heart is to maintain the integrity of the Bible, your, your desire is to seek the authorial intent. You don't, your, your heart is not to apply the Bible to yourself. You're not the center of the Bible. Your heart is not to have yourself interpret and understand it according to your own paradigm. But you really seek to understand what Paul is saying and how Timothy would have understood it. You would find that this text is uh, not so easily packaged. It's much more difficult. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense in how it's normally interpreted. I mean, look at verse 4. Here it's not a command. Paul is not telling Timothy a command in verse 4, but a, this absolute depiction of a soldier's life. He's giving a depiction, a description of all soldiers all over the world. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Uh, civilian pursuits, what does that mean? It's not a prohibition against uh, dating and getting married because soldiers do date. Soldiers do get married and have children. It's not a prohibition for Christians to uh, get involved in hobbies and uh, play sports or, or, or get involved in, you know, be entertained with media because soldiers, you know, listen to music, they play sports, and they, they watch TV, they watch movies. It's not a call for uh, Christians to like soldiers, um, you know, to uh, soldiers pay bills, they, they buy cars, they buy a house. They do all these things. So what does it mean no soldier in active duty gets entangled with civilian affairs? And didn't Paul just talk about this? Verse 3 says, um, soon kako patheo with us. Uh, evil, suffer. Share in your suffering. Didn't he just say this in chapter 1, verse 8? Why is he repeating himself in verse 4 of chapter 2? Is there a difference 
in how he's addressing Timothy. And um, why does he employ these three images, uh, three uh, persons, and how are they related? He talks about a soldier and civilian affairs. He talks about an athlete and rules and talks about a farmer, a hardworking farmer who gets the first share of the crops. I don't know, but for me, I mean, it was just, I couldn't make heads or tails of this. It was always a, a, a passage that left me with more questions than answers. And at least for the sermons that I heard, uh, the answers weren't sufficient to the questions that I had concerning this text. And then in verse 7, Paul says, and it's the only time Paul ever does this in all his epistles, consider what I'm saying. Think over what I just wrote, and the Lord will give you understanding. So he's telling Timothy, and he's telling us, don't gloss over these three examples. Oh, soldier, athlete, farmer, whatever, let's move on to something else. Paul's saying, stop right here and meditate upon these verses. Because if you do so, the Lord will give you understanding. It is a a challenge uh, to interpret New Testament epistles, uh, largely because they are occasional letters. They are responding to a situation which we are not aware of. Paul is responding to something here. Paul is talking to Timothy because of certain circumstance that that Timothy is involved in, and we are not sure what that is. We are only hearing one side of the phone conversation. We're only hearing Paul's answer, but we don't know what the other voice in the line is asking. So based upon that one-sided phone conversation, we have to fill in the gaps and try to understand the meaning of this text. Now let me qualify that here the exegesis of verses 3 through 7, it's clear. I know exactly what Paul is saying, the drawing out, the objective meaning of verses 3 through 7. But what I'm struggling to understand is, what does it mean for Timothy, and what does it mean for us? Does that make sense? Right? I know what it means objectively, but what is going on in Timothy's life? What is going on in the church at Ephesus? What is going on in Christianity? And how is Timothy receiving it? What does it mean for him? And thereby, what does it mean for us? And that is a challenge that is set before us as we endeavor to understand this passage this morning. Uh, So to do that, we need to look at the context. In studying the Bible, the most important thing always is context. And um, we'll start with the first word. you. It's second person singular. Paul is talking to Timothy. So he's telling Timothy, be a good soldier. And he's giving these illustrations of soldier, athlete, and farmer to Timothy, not to the faithful men who he will entrust to teach others. He's not telling Timothy, tell those guys to be brave, tell those guys to not cheat, tell those guys to work hard. That's not what's happening here. Paul is telling Timothy, second person singular, as a leader, as a pastor of this church. And the second word is therefore. The Greek word un. 
which ties the previous passage to Paul's instructions uh, in chapter 2. The previous passage is all about defectors, all about those who have... um, who are going astray, who have gone astray. Uh, verse 15, an argument can be made that the running theme, the running backdrop of this whole letter, and the reason Paul wrote this letter because there was a mass defection of Christians, especially Christian leaders within the Christian churches. And Paul is writing because there are all these men that are discouraging the body of believers because they are leaving Christ and leaving the church. Um, He mentions them by name. Verse 15 of chapter 1, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they turned away from Paul, deserted him. Chapter 4, verse 10, here's another deserter, Demas, and Paul tells us why he left, because he loved the world. He loved the world more than he loved Christ. He loved the things of this world, the pride of life, lust of the eyes, the pride of boastful pride of the flesh, more than Christ, so he deserted Christ and his church. But there is another group of deserters that are more sinister, that are more um, destructive to the church. These are the ones who have deserted Christ, but they are still in the church. They have gone astray from orthodoxy, sound theology, sound doctrine, the true gospel. They have left Christ spiritually, but physically they're still in the church, infecting the body with their poison. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, he's talking about, telling Timothy to avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. These are men who are involved in controversies, right? slander, this babble, this, this, this lot of talking that is hurting the church, infecting the church, spreading like gangrene, and among them he names them Hymenaeus and Philetus. Verse 18, they have swerved from the truth and they're proclaiming heresy. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. But they're still affiliated with the church because they're upsetting the faith of some. They're still within the congregation and they're upsetting the faith of many Christians. Um, The next chapter, chapter 3, 1 through 9, Paul tells Timothy, this is just a start. There'll be Days will come with difficulty. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And there are people who are affiliated with the church. Why do we say that? Verse 6. Because among them are those who creep into households. They're targeting weak-willed women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And in verse 9, just like Janice and Jambres, they will not get very far because their folly will be plain to all 
as was that of those two men. So within the church, affiliated with the church would be such men who have deserted Christ, but continuing to wreak havoc among believers. That was what was happening in the first century church. And there was a a mass, continual defection. There were bleeding of leaders. And so in light of that, Paul is calling Timothy, you therefore, my child in the faith, in light of these defectors, and then verse 2, select out faithful men who will teach others. We need to replace these vacant spots. We need to uh, fill these uh, roles in leadership. So invest in men who will lead the church and make sure you suffer hardship with us as a good soldier of Christ. And then verse 4. Look at verse 3. Be a good soldier. The Greek word is kalos, soldier. It's the, it's, there's two Greek words, agathos and kalos, for good in the Greek. Agathos is the objective good. The kalos is the subjective good. Be a faithful, loyal, devoted soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, don't defect. Don't turn away. Um, be loyal to Christ by embracing suffering. Don't turn away from suffering. Receive it. Endure, stand firm, and as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, uh, endure hardship, suffer hardship. Now, I believe Paul is speaking to a specific kind of suffering in chapter 2, a different kind in chapter 1. Now, I believe this, and let me try to prove it to you, defend it to you, and let me see if I can convince you that this is the case. Chapter 1, verse 8, suffer hardship. That's for all Christians. Suffer hardship, suffer trials for the gospel. That's for every Christian. But in chapter 2, verse 4, he's calling Timothy to suffer hardship as a good soldier in a particular sense. He's calling them, calling him not to defect from the Christian ministry. Not to go astray from the one who enlisted him as his commanding officer. And how is uh, Timothy um, tempted to go astray from Christ? Um, Again, verse 4. This is where uh, we need to uh, synthesize what the verse is saying in a lot of the context. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. In what way does a soldier no longer entangle himself in civilian pursuits? When soldiers do date and get married, they shop for cars and get a deal, they buy homes, they go shopping for clothes, Um, they have children, they pay bills, they have hobbies, they play basketball, football, and, and, and the sort. Uh, what is this civilian pursuit that no soldier throughout the world does not get entangled in? It, it is their career, their job, their main source of income. Every soldier throughout the world, when he is drafted, when he volunteers for service, 
he leaves this behind. He leaves his former career behind. So you might have been a school teacher, but not in the armed forces. You might have been an accountant, no longer. A software engineer, a small business owner, a lawyer, a doctor. Once you join the military, you leave that behind and you become a soldier who seeks to please his commanding officer and does whatever the commanding officer tells him to do, leaving behind his former career. Albert Barnes, the commentator, wrote this. He said, Having alluded to the soldier and stated one thing in which the Christian minister is to resemble him, another point of resemblance, apart from suffering, is that the minister nor the soldier is to be encumbered with the affairs of this life. And the one should not be more than the other. This is always a condition in becoming a soldier. He gives up his business during the time for which he is enlisted and devotes himself fully to the service of his country. The farmer leaves his plow, the mechanic his shop, the merchant his store, the student his books, the lawyer his office, and neither the the pastor or the soldier is expected to pursue these things while engaged in what either his God or his country has called him to. It would wholly be impracticable to carry on the plans of a campaign if each one of these classes should undertake to prosecute his private business. So let me try to continue to defend this. I think Timothy's wavering here. I think the situation is much more dire than we think. We look back on 2,000 years of church history and look at the great defenders of the faith. And we read into first century Christianity with much more confidence than I think Timothy had when he received this letter. I think when Timothy received this letter, he was a young man who was, um, in Paul's word, given to fear, who had a timid soul, a timid spirit, who had an aversion to suffering. And the men that he looked up to, men that he respected, and his peers, his fellow uh, ministers, were defecting en masse, straying away from Christ. And those that were still in the church were subverting the gospel, undermining his leadership, and leading people astray, friendly fire, picking Christians left and right. And Timothy was struggling, he was wavering, and um, in light of verse 4, and in light of, we'll study 1 Corinthians 9, I think Timothy was tempted to go back to his old vocation, go back to his old career, to go back to his old source, old source of income. Um, and I know many pastors, and we talk, and I don't know any pastor after the first few years where he was not tempted to go back, either to his old job or to look for another, look for a new job. Pastoral ministry is so challenging, so difficult, and um, there's such a sense of inadequacy 
every pastor I know at least has at least entertained uh, dreams of, man, wouldn't it be nice if I was just, and I don't want to like demean your, your career, but if I was just, I don't know, a doctor or a lawyer or the president of the United States or, <laughs> or NBA basketball star, man, life would be so much easier if I just had a regular job and church was my refuge instead of the ministry. Um, most pastors, that's how they defect from their calling. Uh, Timothy wasn't going to defect from Christ and become a false teacher. He wasn't going to defect and go become uh, you know, the chief of sinners in terms of like uh, sinning against Christ. And most pastors I know, their heart is not to defect and I, I can't wait to proclaim heresy. I want to go out there and preach false doctrine, or I'm going to go and start a new, a sinful nightclub, and uh, you know, like have party with my friends. You know, Timothy and most pastors are tempted um, to defect from the ministry by uh, going back to the going back to a secular job, seeking a regular vocation. Um, Paul is saying, Timothy, don't do this. No, Timothy. Share in your suffering. For all Christians, share in your suffering for the gospel. But for you as a Kalas soldier of Christ Jesus, share in your suffering. And what is that suffering? You understand that no soldier in active service entangles himself in civilian affairs. And what is that? It's having his own career, own vocation, his own job. No, he is completely committed to his enlisting officer, seeking to please him. Now, uh, you might be saying, wait a minute. Um, Pastor James, I sense inconsistency here. There is... um, uh, maybe uh, duplicity or maybe even hypocrisy by the Apostle Paul because wasn't the Apostle Paul a tent maker? Wait a minute. Didn't he have a side job? Literally, he was a tent maker. He made tents. And he supported himself with the work of the ministry. It doesn't match up. How could he tell Timothy not to have a secular job while serving Christ but for himself, have this uh, profession. To uh, answer that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Here Paul explains the discrepancy between his teaching that those who are called to active service, full-time pastors, should not entangle themselves in another career, and his example as a tent maker. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul set out the limits of Christian liberty, limits that are to be determined by brotherly love, that the law that drives us in all that we do is love for our brethren. Though we are free in all the gray areas mentioned by Dan at our retreat, what constrains us, what limits us, is our love for one another. 
the key verse is verse 9 of chapter 8. Take care that this right of yours, this freedom of yours does not become a stumbling block to the meat, to the weak, so much so that if you eating meat causes your brother to stumble in his presence, you will never eat meat again. Our rights, our freedoms are to end voluntarily when someone else is offended, when someone else stumbles. In chapter 9, Paul illustrates how he applied this in his own life. How he had freedom as an apostle of Christ, but he limited his own freedom um, because of Christ and those whom he loved. In verses 1 through 14, he sets forth his rights. And verses 15 through 18 gives us the reason why he did not take advantage of his freedoms. In verses 1 through 14, he gives six reasons why he had the right to be supported by the churches whom he served. The first reason in verse 4, he's an apostle of Christ. They accused him, the reason you're not being supported financially is because you're not an apostle. You're a false apostle. You're a fraud. You're not a genuine apostle like the twelve. And Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Verse 1. And he gives uh, two verifications that of his apostleship. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul saw Christ at least three times. Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. And in two visions that we know of, Acts 18 and Acts 22. Paul says, ah, I saw the risen Lord and he commissioned me to be an apostle. But not only that, the second proof of his apostleship was the Corinthian believers themselves. Verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are Gentiles, and I have led you to Christ. And your faith and your maturity and the establishment of this church validates my apostleship. This is my defense, Paul said in verse 3, those who would examine me. Therefore, as an apostle, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do I not have the right to have you pay for my food and pay for my drink? Verse 5, do I not, do we not, Paul and Barnabas, have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? There is a touch of sarcasm here. Right? Is it everybody has this freedom to minister and be supported in their ministry except for Barnabas, Barnabas and I? He uh, gives an argument from common practice in the world. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? All soldiers throughout the world, they don't buy their own bullets, buy their own uniforms, right? buy their own tents, buy their own machetes. No, the government supports them because they're risking their lives for their service to their country. Verse 7b, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? That's absurd. If you're a farmer, you planted a vineyard, you have every right to take some, and consume it for yourself. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? This is common practice. I was talking to one of the employees at, at Eugene's uh, Frostbite's Italian Ice, and they're telling that you know they get minimum wage. Is that right, Eugene? Or are you? <laughs> they get minimum wage, but they get 
all they, all they can drink while they're at work, right? All they can drink, soda, iced tea, and one small Italian ice for eight-hour work shift. What a generous boss. Give them a medium, Eugene, come on. Or, right, but you work in Italian ice, eight hours. Is it like absurd for them to get a small Italian ice? No, it's common practice, right? At the very least, that's what you would do. So that's Paul saying, right? Also appeals in the Old Testament law, not just common practice. I'm not just talking on human authority, verse 8. Does not the law say the same? It is written in the law of Moses. You shall not, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. And is God concerned about animals? Is God so concerned about that oxen that he gives a command? No, God is gives that command as a principle for Christian work or, or those that serve God in the temple and future Christian ministers. Verse 10, it was written for our sake, not for that ox, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So Christian pastors who work in the church, they sow spiritual seed. Verse 11, it's not too much that they shall reap material things. They should sow in hope of that, in confidence of that. If others share this rightful claim on you, who did not plant the church, who did not lead people to Christ, itinerant evangelists come and you support them, shouldn't we have this right even more? And then he gives an example from the Old Testament, not not the law, but an example. Verse 13, priests who served in the temple, they ate food that were offered as a sacrifice, the priests. And not only that, he goes to Christ's command. Verse 14, the Lord himself commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Luke chapter 10, verse 7, he says, remain in the same house. You preach the gospel, they welcome you, they receive the gospel. You stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. But verse 15, Paul says, I have made no use of any of these rights. So verse 15, that first word is a key key transition. He says, these are all the freedoms that all pastors have, all missionaries have, and all apostles have. I'm an apostle. I have these rights. I have these freedoms. But I have not made use of any of these rights. In fact, this was Paul's policy wherever he went. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day when we were with you, so that we would not be a burden to you when we proclaim the gospel of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, we did not eat anyone's bread. I did not take a loaf of bread from you without paying for it. Right? That was my heart conviction. I took nothing from you. I worked as a tent maker, supported myself, and I provided the gospel to you for free. It was such a deep-seated conviction for Paul. Verse 15b, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. All right, this is not a passing like, you know, resolution for Paul. For Paul, he would rather die than have someone deprive Paul of 
this boast. Why? Why was it so important? Because of Paul's apostolic calling. Verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For me, preaching the gospel, I I have no boast. I have no reward. Why? For necessity is laid upon me. When I met Jesus, he didn't ask me, Paul, do you want to get saved? Paul, do you want to accept me into your heart? Paul, would you consider my invitation to you to be my apostle to the Gentiles? No, there was no option. There was no choice. He appeared to me. And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? He opened my eyes. He saved me. And he called me and made me his apostle. Galatians 1.15 says that God set him apart even from his mother's womb. Just like Jeremiah, just like John the Baptist, Paul was called and ordained by God before he was born. He had no choice. So for him to preach, there was no reward. And in fact, if he didn't preach, verse 16b, woe to me if I did not preach the gospel. So for Paul, it wasn't like, oh, if I don't preach the gospel, I'm going to feel miserable. Oh, I'm going to you know, feel depressed or feel guilty or shameful. How am I going to sleep if I don't preach the gospel? You know, I, I like a good night's rest. I'm, I'm going to preach the gospel. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying there is divine judgment, divine condemnation upon me if I don't preach the gospel. Just like Jonah. Right? Jonah, the bad attitude prophet. Right? So here next to Jonah, if I don't preach the gospel... I'm going to be in the belly of a fish. So for Jonah, he went to Nineveh because he'd rather go to Nineveh than die right, in the belly of a fish. And he preached with a bad heart. He preached with anger. Are you Ninevites? Man, I don't love you. I don't care. But here's, the, here's God calls you to repent. And they repent. He's like, I knew they'd repent. Right? <laughs> Man, why'd you guys repent? Now God's going to be merciful towards you and spare you. And he was upset. right? But there was no reward for Jonah. When we go to heaven, he's going to have a real small crown because, or maybe no crown at all because he did it out of duty, not out of joy, not out of freedom. So for Paul, he knew this. He was preaching not out of freedom, but out of, out of divine command, out of necessity, out of compulsion. So for Paul, the only way he could boast, only way he could have a reward, the only way he could express his love for Christ was by denying him the freedom that he had in Christ, right? Was to limit his freedom. What was that? To be supported by the church. He had every right as a minister to have the church support him. But he said, for me, doing ministry is out of compulsion. For the sake of my own heart, my own joy, my own reward, my own boasting, I'm going to work doubly hard and offer the gospel for free. Verse 17, where if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am just entrusted with a stewardship. So for Paul, that's why, but for Timothy, he has a choice. Timothy wasn't, he's not an apostle. He has the choice to be an accountant, be a lawyer, be a doctor, and serve Christ as a lay person, right? Timothy has that choice. 
Paul didn't exercise his freedom by not being supported in ministry. For Timothy and all future pastors, we exercise our freedom. We limit our freedom by following God's will. And if it be to be in full-time ministry, we choose that course of life. But we are free to go back and pursue our old occupation or a new one. So Pastor Dan has a choice to become a software engineer for Google or Microsoft if he so desired. He has that freedom. I can go and uh, flip burgers, right? Or in my dreams become, uh, you know, MBA, a dumb joke, but I, I have a freedom if, to try out for the MBA and not make it, right? Um, right? Jason and Joe are being supported part-time. Uh, and so Jason has an option, he did, to, to pursue a PhD or THD, whatever they call it, and uh, become a professor. He had that option. Joe has an option, he's serving half-time. He has an option of full-time working for, as an import-exporter of hair products. <laughs> I make a lot of money, inside joke. But. <laughs> but we give up our freedom and we pursue Christ. Right. But that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, we laid hands on you, Timothy. You have that freedom. But be a colossal soldier. Right. Suffer. Don't, don't be uh, disturbed by the defections physically and spiritually. Don't struggle with the pressure of providing for yourself and your family. Suffer with us. And just like a good soldier, like soldiers all, all over the world, do not entangle yourself with civilian affairs. Right? And in doing so, you will please your commanding officer. Next week we'll study how the athlete ties into this. You want that prize, Timothy. You got to play according to the rules. And work hard, Timothy. If you work hard, you will get the first share of the crops here and in the kingdom to come. But I believe that is what Paul is saying. If we tie those loose ends together, at least for me, verses 3 through 7 makes sense. What Paul is saying illustrations that he's using and the circumstances of, of Timothy's life. It makes sense, and I believe that's what he's saying. Well, final thoughts for all of us. Um, I would say one of the key practical reasons for the strength and health of our church is that the elders a few years ago made a conscious decision, and we said we want a strong military, Right? How do we have a strong military? We have to raise the budget for the military. We have to support our pastors. Right? We have to pay our pastors. They should have sufficient uh, equipping, training, and tools to carry on the work of the ministry without hindrance. And so the elders said, we're going to be generous. Right? And so, I mean, an all honest truth. Right? My wife and I were talking about this recently. Cornerstone has been very generous to me and my family. Very generous. Um, God has been so good to us through Cornerstone Bible Church. Uh, Cornerstone is generous to Pastor Dan and his family. Right? Not very generous, but just generous. And we can be more generous. And um, 
we're about the going rate for Joe and Jason. <laughs> but we'll, we're going to do better in the future. Right? But all of this is possible because of your generosity, your commitment to 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 2, 2, that we don't want our soldiers having a, you know, side careers, side occupations. Well, I can't be at that battle tomorrow because I have to go report to my work. You know, I have to, you know, do other, I have to order, I have to answer to other, other employers or managers so I can't be faithful to ministry because of your faithfulness to give and support the pastors, we are allowed to do this. Right. One of the key practical reasons for Cornerstone's help. Secondly, uh, though these instructions are for Timothy and all pastors, in principle, it applies to all of us. So this is where we transition from the specific instruction to principalizing the passage. You know, Paul told Timothy to bring the cloak when Timothy visits him. It's winter, Paul is cold, bring a cloak. The instruction is for Timothy to bring his coat for him. It's not for us. So we don't wake up tomorrow to take a coat to Paul in the city of Rome. He's not there. Right? We're going to be very disappointed. But the, inst- but the principle is for us that we should serve one another. Right? We should help one another. So, the, so the, though the specific instruction is for Timothy and pastors, for every Christian here, we are soldiers for Christ and it does apply to us. And so in this way... Um, you know, suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Be wary of your own hearts. Um, be suspicious of your own hearts. If you think you're standing firm in terms of your theological fidelity to Christ, then you are most vulnerable. We should be examining our hearts and searching the scriptures. You know, we're so good at discerning other teachers, but how good are we in discerning ourselves? We search the scriptures to make sure Pastor James is speaking the truth. But how often are we searching the scriptures to make sure what we are saying is accordance, consistent with the truth of God's word? Take care that you are not one defecting theologically or defecting morally from Christ. You're not the one that's uh, like gangrene spreading false life or false theology in the life of the church and upsetting the faith of some. And be a good soldier. Instead of defecting, uh, by the grace of God, and I'll talk about this at the end, but just to remind you, by being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, not in our own strength, left to ourselves, we're going to be, we're cowards. We're going to run away. We're going to abandon ship. We're going to leave our, we leave Christ and fellow soldiers behind. Are, are you crazy? Only by God's grace do we have the strength to stand in the heat of the battle. And be a loyal soldier, a faithful man, where during the heat of battle we don't lose heart. So by, by being strengthened by the grace of God, don't avoid suffering. Endure, persevere, be steadfast. For some of you, this means stop church hopping. Right? Some of you, every two, three, four years, you, you skip churches. You go to a church, you encounter difficulty. You have difficulty with relationships, right? difficulty with fellowship, or difficulty in fitting in, or something doesn't you know, sit well with you, so you just move on. For some of you, it's ministry hopping. You commit to one ministry after about a year, you get bored of it. You get tired. 
right? Whatever ministry it is, the excitement is gone, the thrill is gone, so you move to another ministry. So you've been at Cornerstone for five years, you've been in five different ministries. Every year, you just, right? You don't have a heart of steadfastness, of, of, of faithfulness, of sticking it through when it's difficult. As soon as it gets difficult or boring or unexciting, you move on to another ministry. Or it might be care group popping, right? Your care group leader kind of gets into your kitchen, starts to shepherd your heart, says difficult things, and your response is to go to another care group. Or maybe it's people hopping. Constantly moving from one group of, uh, you just get tired of people. And this applies to all of us. By God's grace, have a spirit of endurance, of faithfulness, of steadfastness. And for Timothy and for pastors, it's not pursue a secular career. But for you, for lay Christians, it's the principle of don't get engrossed in worldly pursuits. Right? Don't get immersed in temporal things. You have all the freedom in the world. But God's heart for you is not that you would get immersed in them, whether it's uh, clothes or makeup, whether it's sports. There's a little bit of a golf frenzy at Cornerstone. You are free to golf. I am free to play basketball. But don't get engrossed in it. Don't get immersed in it. Don't become obsessed. Or media, or your work, your career, your occupation. Don't get immersed in your family. We want to be Christ-centered, not family-centered, not child-centered. Don't get engrossed in your children's sport. You have all the freedom in the world to have your kids do um, soccer, baseball, um, ballet for the girls, uh, you know, flute for the girls, I guess. I don't know. If you're a guy doing flute, no, it's, it's all good. But don't get immersed in it. Um, bridal showers, baby showers, birthdays, anniversaries, all the freedom in the world. But as soldiers for Christ, we're not to be immersed. We need to know ourselves and know and live 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13 and 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So we need to know our hearts. And we know how easily we become addicted and engrossed and become mastered by good things that God has given to us as gifts. So do I have the freedom because we want to be unencumbered in our pursuit of Christ? We say no to things that we have all the freedom in the world to be, to be part of. First Corinthians 10, um, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That applies to us. Every single Christian here. Right? These are the questions we need to ask as we live in this world. And then finally, I'll take a, just maybe a half a step back and look at the bigger um, packaging of this passage. Verse 1 and verse 8. It's intentional by the Apostle Paul. It is not um, just a, a, a mindless in, insertion. Uh, verse 1 starts with, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
And then verse 8 is remember Jesus Christ. Just in case you miss it, I want to point that out to you. That beyond the soldier, beyond the athlete, beyond the farmer, the one we are to remember is Jesus Christ. And His gospel as the reason for all that we do as Christians. For His gospel, that's what Paul said in verse 8. This is my gospel for whom I am chained like a criminal. Timothy, you know, here I am, and I, I don't know, I don't know if he's thinking this, but I, I would think this. I mean, I would, I think this of him. He's a good soldier. He's not a defector. He's suffering for Christ. And in fact, he's an awesome athlete, because if anyone kept the rules, it's Paul. So much so, he denied the freedoms that he had. Right? He, he not only didn't take steroids, he didn't take creatine. He didn't take those, you know, multivitamins even either. I mean, he played according to the rules. And talk about a hard worker, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I worked harder than all of them. Not, not I, but the grace of God. No one worked harder than Paul. But Paul says, I was a so I'm a soldier, I'm an athlete, I'm a farmer. But why is uh remembering Jesus Christ, the gospel. This is why I am chained as a common criminal. Um, we'll talk about this more next week, but we don't want to lose sight of that. We don't want to take these instructions and and commands, divorce them from the real power that's driving Paul. Uh, which is the gospel of Christ. And may that be what prompts us today to be faithful to uh, these instructions. Let's pray. Well, it's a little difficult for me because it seems a little self-serving, but it is what I believe the passage is talking about is talking about pastors who have um, set aside their freedom to pursue their own vocation to serve Christ and Christ alone. Um, So I think it's appropriate for us to take a moment out to pray for those who are laboring in the church, those who are serving Christ, um, the pastors, of our church, then I'll close in prayer. Father, we want to uh, close our time um, again, just as we just looked at, looking at Jesus Christ, remembering Jesus Christ and His gospel, uh, which empowered Paul, empowered Timothy, empowers us to be colossal soldiers, to be athletes who race according to the rules, and to be hardworking farmers. 
toiling in your field. We pray that that the, the message of grace, message of the cross and your son's substitutionary death would so grip our hearts that it would cause us to uh, lay aside, lay aside anything that in, in, in hinders us and entangles us. Uh, lay them aside uh, and to pursue you with all our hearts. Lord, we pray for uh, pastors of our church. You would Protect them, keep their hearts steadfast, that they would truly be motivated by grace, empowered by grace, strengthened by grace every day, and um, they would seek to please you alone. Their commanding officer, uh, they would not be uh, shaken by any circumstances of this world, uh, but with their hearts uh, set by the gospel, with their eyes only upon you, you would so grant our pastors to, uh, uh, to to behold your glory and minister uh, without with undivided hearts. And we pray for our whole church that we would, uh, following in their example, uh, the gospel of grace would set us free.